Sustainability is a major topic of conversation in society today, and for good reason. We all want to be able to pass along a livable world to our children and grandchildren. If you're a fan of the Avenger movies, the idea of an unsustainable future plays like a theme through all the movies. Whether it is the ignorance of the effect we're having on the planet or just not enough resources, the Avengers do a good job of balancing the moral issue with the importance of action and responsibility for not only the people in your life, but also your surroundings. Now, normally I could have gotten into much more detail about the most recent Avengers movie, Infinity War, but I hate spoilers, so I'll avoid giving away any more plot points. We have learned a lot about the importance of sustainability over recent decades. Most big companies now have a CSO, or Chief Sustainability Officer, and publish annual reports explaining the steps they're taking to make their particular business more sustainable. People care about this, and that makes sense. There is some general agreement around the concept that sustainability is found at the intersection of the three P's, people, planet, and profit. In this way of talking about sustainability, it means that it involves what is best for people in terms of health and social justice, what is best for the planet from an environmental point of view, and what is also good for the profitability of a business something necessary for that business to survive for the long term. I think that many people can buy into this way of thinking about sustainability. Now, when it comes to agricultural sustainability, everyone is a stakeholder. Obviously, farmers want and need to be able to do their jobs in a sustainable way, not just in terms of their financial viability, but also with regard to their role as stewards of the valuable resource of farmable lands. Also, most farms in the U.S. are still family-owned, and those farmers want to be able to pass along a sustainable operation to the next generation of farmers in their family. Other businesses involved in the food system want to be able to show that they're sourcing whatever crops they need from sustainable farming systems, and they want to be able to document that for their downstream customers. Consumers have a major stake in sustainability of their food supply since everyone needs to eat, and people would like to feel good about the sources of their food and the long-term prospects for the diversity and affordability of that supply. They also want to know that this is happening with the minimum environmental impact possible. So on today's Pop Agriculture podcast, I'd like to talk about how the conversation about agricultural sustainability has evolved over time. past, some have promoted the idea that sustainable farming should mean low input, small-scale, organic, or ecological, things that don't rely on too much technology. Local food, permaculture, or all perennial crops are other ideas occasionally promoted as the model for sustainability. These views of sustainability tend to be about ideology more than about an objective assessment of what actually meets the three Ps ideal. In more recent times, a case is being made for the idea that technology can and really must be part of the solution for society in general and agriculture specifically. That idea is well articulated by a movement called eco-modernism. 
Eco-modernists argue that if we're going to keep up with growing food demand around the world, we need to do that through rational intensification of farming on the land we already farm as a means of land sparing that preserves the integrity of remaining wild areas around the world. Starting about 10 years ago, the conversation about ag sustainability entered a new chapter. Several significant multi-stakeholder groups were organized with the goal of finding consensus about what it really means to farm sustainably. One of the groups, called Field to Market, was organized by the nonprofit Keystone Center. Field to Market started with a focus on the major U.S. row crops like corn, soybeans, cotton, and wheat. Another such multi-stakeholder group was initially sponsored by Walmart, and it is called the Sustainability Consortium, or TSC. One of the upsides about this trend is that these groups involve a wide range of players in the food system. There are grocery retailers, food service companies, grain handlers, food processors and manufacturers, produce shippers, commodity groups for each crop representing the farmers, many environmental NGOs, technology companies, government regulators, and academic scientists. For instance, the field-to-market effort involves more than 135 members. From my perspective, there is just one key party that isn't at the table. The absentee landowners, who tend to be descendants of farmers who now live in cities and lease their land to the remaining farmers, in usually kind of a hands-off fashion through land management companies. To hear about this group, listen to an earlier pop agriculture episode titled, You Can't Buy the Farm, But You Can Rent It. One common feature of these various multi-stakeholder groups is the desire to define sustainability in terms of specific outcomes and an effort to measure those outcomes in an objective fashion, free from some of the ideological controversies. The saying goes, you can only manage what you can measure, and that makes a lot of sense. So, for instance, a good metric of sustainability is land use efficiency or how much land does it take to produce each ton, bushel, or other measure of output. The more land use efficient the farming system becomes, the less pressure there is for converting the remaining wild lands into new farmland. That is the land-sparing outcome the eco-modernists talk about. Water use efficiency is another logical, objective, measurable outcome. How many gallons of irrigation water were needed to produce a bushel of grain or a ton of apples? How much yield does a certain farm get from the rainfall that it receives? Some of the measurable outcomes are expressed as footprints. So the energy footprint is about how much fuel and electricity it takes to produce the bushels or tons of the crop and how much energy is embedded in making some of the inputs, the fertilizers and crop protection products that it takes to grow that crop. The idea is that rather than getting bogged down in an ideological argument, they should look at these metrics and and look at where we're headed. Another common saying in this new broad-based sustainability community is that sustainability is a journey, not a destination. The idea is to look for continuous improvement over time and then appreciate the innovations that make that progress possible. A constructive feature of several of these multi-stakeholder groups is that they look to historical data tracked by the USDA, FAO, or others who demonstrate how agriculture has actually been on this journey for a long time. When you do this kind of analysis, you see that based on various metrics, our farming systems have been headed in a positive direction for decades. 
Farmers of most crops in the U.S. and many around the world have been producing more from the same land base and more per unit of water or energy. There's always the potential to do better, but it's encouraging to know that there's precedent for progress. Various changes have driven the progress to date, particularly progress in the breeding of many crops for greater yield potential. Genetics is still and always going to be part of the story, but moving forward, there are various other technologies that are playing a bigger and bigger role. From the equipment side, something called auto-steer is a big advance. Using GPS or even more localized positional data, lots of modern farm equipment is able to mostly drive itself and so precisely that it avoids overlaps or skips that waste resources or leave some parts of the field undertended. The adoption of this technology has been rapid because it quickly addresses two of the P's we referenced at the start of the episode. The profit, while at the same time addressing the planet through resource use efficiency. Broadly speaking, one of the important modern sustainability trends is called precision agriculture. Farm fields are notoriously non-uniform. And that goes back to the history of how the original soils were formed. They're old creek beds or little rises or bands of heavier clay. And this means that different parts of even a one-acre field can be quite different in terms of their basic soil structure. And that gets compounded over time by how things grow on those different spots. In recent times, it's become possible to measure and characterize these differences and to identify management zones in a field. For instance, the harvest combines used today typically capture a detailed yield map of the field, which is a geospatial image of what parts of the field have an abundant harvest and which parts are chronically less productive. That yield map can be compared with other maps based on strategically chosen soil samples sent to a lab, or even real-time measurements of certain soil properties taken by machinery, which once again can be put into the geospatial map of the field. I was just at a meeting called InfoAg, and there were lots of talks about how to gather zone-specific data in fields, and companies presented their ways of working on how to do that. The reason to collect more and more sophisticated zone-specific data about a field is so it can be managed, not with one standard set of practices, but with practices that are precision-guided based on everything that is known about each zone. One of the new options is variable rate fertilization. The yield history and soil information about zones can tell the farmer where there is the most benefit to be had from fertilization and where fertilizer rates can be cut back. That often means that a higher total yield can be achieved off of the field with a lower total amount of fertilizer used. This kind of targeted input can improve many of the objective metrics around outcomes like land, water, and energy use efficiency. Another fertilizer-related form of precision ag has to do with watching the field during the growing season to identify subsections which might need some extra nutrients and only deliver them there. There are tractor-based sensors for that purpose, or the need for fertilizer might be identified from images gathered by satellites, airplanes, or drones looking down at the growing crop. Now many farmers are even using the geospatial data to set up their seed planting equipment to put different hybrids or varieties in different zones in the same field, rather than using a one-size-fits-all approach. Sometimes the data shows that certain parts of field are just not economically worth cropping at all. 
and where it might be best to avoid any inputs and instead establish plants that will attract pollinators or other kinds of beneficial insects. Precision farming also gets into the area of pest management. Remote imaging can sometimes identify initial hotspots for certain pests and be used to direct targeted applications. In some parts of the world, the targeted control can even be carried out by drone sprayers. Treating only selected areas at the right time might not only quash the pest outbreak, it might save the farmer money by decreasing the amount of pesticide needed for that season. There are several technologies under development to use imaging to identify weeds in a field and then direct various kinds of controls to hit them directly without the need to do something to the whole field area. That might make a more targeted program during the regular weed control, or it might be a way to precisely target weed escapes or herbicide-resistant weeds that initially pop up as an isolated phenomenon. One of the exciting new areas in ag technologies has to do with autonomous or robotic equipment that can go out and do a task with minimal human involvement. That isn't a big factor today, but all around the world, there are folks innovating in that regard. There are moisture sensor technologies that are helping farmers get as much yield as possible with the least amount of irrigation. There are on-site digital weather monitors that can put data into various crop and pest models to better guide both agronomic and pest control decisions. Now, a really big theme of agricultural sustainability is soil health. The growing roots of plants feed a whole host of soil microbes and other organisms in the soil. With this input, the soil develops a texture and three-dimensional structure that makes for better aeration, better capture of moisture, and buffering of nutrients. When a soil is plowed or tilled, it loses some of the organic matter that was supported by the roots of the plants when they were growing, and it loses some of that desirable texture and other good properties. Ever since the 1960s, when chemical herbicides became available, there has been a widespread effort to figure out how to reduce the amount of mechanical disturbance of the soil. This has often been called the no-till movement, and progressive growers have been working with that and other systems like strip-till that leave most of the soil undisturbed. You can hear more detail about that in an earlier podcast titled To Till or Not to Till? That is the question. Minimizing mechanical soil disturbance is good for soil health, but there isn't any one measure of soil health that can be easily used as a sustainability metric. Still, there is broad agreement that less disturbance is better for soil health and thus sustainability. Another desirable farming practice that fosters soil health is called cover cropping. Between the time that an annual crop is harvested and when winter really sets in, various plants can be grown to keep feeding and holding the soil. A combination of low tillage and cover crops is sort of the gold standard for sustainable row cropping, along with rotation to different crops from year to year. These sorts of farms also protect waterways because there is virtually no erosion. So, getting back to the three Ps, are these farming practices something that farmers can afford to do? What does that mean for their bottom line? Well, fortunately, there is a natural alignment between many things that are good for the people and the planet that are also good for the farmer's profit. Auto steer, zone-based management, precision fertilization and seeding can reduce a farmer's annual input costs immediately 
and help pay off the investment in the necessary specialized equipment over several years. When it comes to farming methods that improve soil health, there are also economic upsides for the farmer. Healthy soil is better at capturing and holding water from rain or irrigation, and that can improve crop yield even under moderate drought conditions. Healthy soil is better aerated and better buffers nutrients, so it can lead to higher yield potential over time. So in general, all three Ps align on soil health, but only in the medium to long term. The initial transition to minimum tillage actually involves some yield risk, and the benefits of cover cropping can take several years to kick in. So yes, in the medium to long term, the -the state-of-the-art soil health strategies fit all three Ps. But there is a complication that goes back to that missing party at the table that I talked about earlier in the podcast. Lots of U.S. farmland is rented. And again, listen to the Can't Buy the Farm podcast to hear about the history and, and really the logic behind that. So there are a lot of absentee landlords of ag lands. And objectively, these owners have plenty of incentive to encourage their tenants to employ sustainable soil health building farming practices because those increase yield potential and that can lead to increased rental rates. The problem is many land leases are on an annual cash rent basis, so there's no long-term commitment to the tenant. I believe that some changes in lease structure could be a great help in our sustainability journey. I'd say that overall, the ongoing conversation about agricultural sustainability is headed in a good direction. We will be able to track the progress based on measurable efficiencies and shrinking footprints. Survey data can also document the adoption of practices that enhance soil health. As consumers, I think we should be encouraged about the sustainability of our farming systems and about farmer commitment to that goal. Now, when I first started writing this podcast, my my first thought was to focus on disaster movies like The Day After Tomorrow and Mad Max, with more of a focus on the result of ignoring the importance of sustainability. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought The Avengers represented a more positive approach to this discussion. Once you realize something needs to be done, you work with all the stakeholders who bring different views and strengths to your team and find a way to make things better. So if you happen to be a farmland owner or know someone who is, please ask him or her to listen to this podcast and to the one about rented land, because together we can work towards a more sustainable future. Follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.